I didn't feel psychologically safe when I was in high school. And I, if I combine that with my nature of being more internal or introverted, um, I ended up being in a place where I was literally afraid to go to school every day. Uh, not because of the learning aspect, because of the social aspect. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into the latest episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we're going to do something a little bit different today. I'm going to interview John Berghoff, but I actually interviewed him on his own podcast, the Achieve Your Goals podcast. So what you're about to hear is a conversation with somebody that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. Let me tell you a little bit about him. John Berghoff leads some of the largest and most complex group collaborations in the world. Oftentimes, he's running collaborative groups that involve more than 1,000 people, and he's helping guide them through processes where they create and design their collective future together. He is also the president of the Flourishing Leadership Institute, where his team is on a mission to train and certify others in their approach to bring out the best in human systems. Prior to founding FLI, John was well-known in the business space, and he led sales for the Vitamix Corporation, where in less than five years, his organization organically grew in revenue from $42 million to $174 million, and they moved from 175 to 600 team members. He's very passionate about connecting with nature and the inherent wisdom that it brings out from all of us. So please enjoy this conversation. I hope you take something from it. I certainly did. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Daily Helping. I'm about to be interviewed by Dr. Richard, and Dr. Richard, uh, I met at the Best You Ever Blueprint event, he has had his own transformation through the Miracle Morning, and uh, in a unique turn of events, I'm going to be interviewed, and we thought some of you might enjoy hearing this. I do want to say this. I want to say that uh, one of the reasons I'm excited for this community to get to know you and about your podcast uh, and, and they'll have to go find out more about you, I guess, in another episode, because this is supposed to be about me. But I want to make sure I acknowledge that you are a doctor in the area of neuroscience and also in the science of altruism and helping others. And that um, you not only have your own podcast, The Daily Helping, that's, uh, it's really an emerging podcast in the area of self-improvement and generosity, uh, but you're also doing incredible social work helping children that really need your kind of leadership. So um, I know I'm here for you to interview me, but I did want to at least stop and appreciate and acknowledge you and thank you for the work that you're doing. And um, now I'm all yours. Well, I, I really appreciate that. And it was outstanding getting to connect at BYEB. I have been 
a avid practicer of the savers since 2015, haven't missed a week. So uh, no doubt that as many of the people who are tuning into this right now, it's made a profound impact in me. And my show is, for those of you that don't know me, it's all about helping people become the best versions of who they are. And what I'm really trying to do is to get a million people to commit daily acts of kindness, random acts of kindness, and post them in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping. So for those of you that are new, welcome. For those of you who know me and know John, we're going to do something that's a little different because for those of you who listen to the Miracle Morning podcast, the Achieve Your Goals podcast, we don't really talk a lot about John. And I think that's what being a good host is, is that you kind of shut your mouth and let the guest talk about their expertise. But I want to celebrate John Berghoff today. And I like to do that by finding out what makes people who they are, because we're all driven by our unique stories, our unique backgrounds, and our unique passions. And a lot of people know the things about John and the work that he did with Vitamix and some of the other things he's doing with the Flourishing Leadership Institute. So let's talk about, I know that you're in Cleveland, Ohio now. Is that where you're from? Uh, I, well, I grew up in Cupertino, California, okay. and I'm now based out of Hudson, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. And Hudson is a really cool historic town that's about, um, well, it borders a national park where I get to spend a lot of time. So I grew up in the Bay Area, lived in Northern Virginia, now I'm here in Hudson, and uh, this is a great place to raise a family. So I don't, I don't know, maybe we'll be here forever. Awesome. And, and growing up, a lot of people who are entrepreneurs or kind of in this entrepreneurial space will say things like, you know, when I was a kid, I always had this bug. You know, I was selling newspapers or lemonade stands or whatever it is. Was it the case for you that entrepreneurship, that business was just kind of a part of your upbringing or is that something you learned about later in life? Um, I, I appreciate that question. Entrepreneurship for me, um, it's both. One is Growing up in the Bay Area, my, my parents, you know, anyone who's spent any time in Silicon Valley, there is a, um, there's very much a pioneering spirit that exists. You can feel it in the air. And, and I felt that as a kid. I didn't necessarily comprehend it. Um, but both of my parents worked in high tech. Uh, they worked really hard. They both worked full-time growing up. And, and so I, I saw firsthand kind of the passion and the commitment of being mission-driven through how my parents went to work every day. Uh, but for me, entrepreneurship was actually, it was kind of like a way out, as, as my friend Christopher Lockhead would say, because I was very fortunate that when I was uh, 17 years old, uh, it was a time in my life where I was not thriving. Um, I was not in a great place by pretty much every possible definition. And I was, I would just call it lucky. You could call it what you want that I stumbled into the opportunity to sell Cutco knives, as many of our audiences might know. And so I, I was very fortunate because when I got into that entrepreneurial opportunity, what I, I never knew that it allowed me to use some strengths that I had. And because I was able to tap into certain strengths, I thrived combined with having incredible mentors and that company having a great culture. But what's, what is really interesting, I don't think a lot of people know this about my story, but at that time in my life, I was really experiencing in many ways a downward spiral. And so that's why I would say entrepreneurship was, uh, it was kind of a way out for me of a path that wasn't very uplifting. 
And so for that, I'm super grateful. It's interesting that you described that as this downward spiral because, you know, one would think based on the way you described two hardworking parents in IT and Cupertino that, you know, life was probably okay. What was it at 17? Because most 17-year-olds, you know, they have this teenage angst, right? And we know, do we go to college? Do we not go to college? You know, who do we take to prom? It's, it's usually, it's not necessarily the existential crisis that it sounds like you were kind of going through at that point in time. Yeah, you know, for me, it was, um, I think it was a combination of things. I was, I, I think anybody can maybe relate to this in their own way. High school is a very interesting time in our lives where if, and I can only say this looking back, how safe we feel ha- means a lot. And I had this interesting dynamic for me in high school where I didn't have one particular core group of friends that were like my, nu- my nucleus of friends. And um, I don't know if it's because of that or, uh, or if you know, something else led to that. I, I didn't feel psychologically safe when I was in high school. And I, if I combine that with my nature of being more internal or introverted, um, I ended up being in a place where I was literally afraid to go to school every day. Uh, not because of the learning aspect, because of the social aspect. And, uh, and it was pretty painful. It was pretty painful. And what that led to was it actually hurt my ability to learn to where every college that I applied to, I got rejected. And I was by most measures, a smart kid, but I was failing in the current education system. Um, and I think not because I wasn't smart, but because I was psychologically in such a bad place I didn't see a lot of light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and that light really got dark when, you know, this idea of going to college uh, pretty much got eliminated. So that's why I feel lucky that I found entrepreneurship because while most of my friends were doing what everybody else was supposed to do, I didn't have a path. And I imagine as well, because this this spiral that you talked about probably didn't happen overnight in high school. It was probably a series of over a period of years and then accentuated by the rejection letters from these universities that you were receiving. So when you transitioned into Cutco and you had good mentorship, which you mentioned, how quickly were you able to recognize, hey, I've got some abilities that maybe I didn't realize I had. When did that kind of light bulb go on for you? Almost instantaneously. And the reason why I think looking back is because I was able to combine several different strengths of mine that I had never had a playground to configure them together. Uh, So one of those strengths that I credit my parents for helping me to develop was when I grew up, they worked hard. And I really learned to value working hard. I don't think today that working 100 hours a week is a badge of honor worth celebrating, Uh, especially as a dad nowadays. I celebrate working a lot less. Uh, but knowing how to turn it on, knowing how to flip the switch, knowing how to get focused and driven, at least for periods of time to, uh, to move a lot of activity, was something that I was able to glean from watching my parents grow up. So that strength of being willing to work my ass off, in, I felt like I can work harder than anyone on the planet. And when I combine that with realizing, hey, I'm pretty good at listening and communicating, and when you combine hard work with listening, communicating, and, and 
in a, in a real curiosity about how people work, being in sales can be a really positive place to be. So that's why I say it was almost instantaneous. And, and I got a credit. I had Dan Cassetta as a mentor, as part of a company and a culture that were absolutely perfect for those skill sets to thrive. So I think that's, that's why it happens so quickly. It's kind of like that combination of, of life being able to thrive. Like you have the right environmental circumstances and then you have these other things, these other properties instead of events that just kind of set into motion at the right time. So you were, you were essentially in the right place at the right time. And you had people, you mentioned Dan Cassetta, who were able to not only pull those strengths out of you, but help you realize and, and fortunately realize in short order that you're awesome at what you, and have the potential to do really awesome things. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was an awesome experience. So take us through now you, you're, you're at Cutco, you're doing exceptionally well there. Take us through what happened to you next. Well, I had a positive experience selling Cutco and I got to a point where, uh, in, in my mind, I felt like I had learned a lot and I thought, what would it look like if I took these strengths out into the world, not knowing what that would mean? And so I did something kind of extreme, which when you're 20 years old, uh, that's what you should do. I moved across the country from the Bay Area to living just outside of Washington, D.C. I had one of my two older brothers was living out there. And I'd saved up enough money that um, I went trail running and rock climbing every day. And, uh, and I, that's when, actually when I started meditation. Uh, in fact, it was, a, it was an audio program. I think it was called, I think it was by Deepak Chopra. I'm looking on my desk because I, I actually had the book. Uh, yeah, Synchro Destiny. Here it is if you're watching the live stream. This book, Synchro Destiny, was an audio program, whatever that was, 10, 12 years ago. And I not only listened to it, but I had it transcribed. And I noticed that when I started to meditate, there was, uh, in Deepak's words, a synchronicity that I was becoming aware of in my life. And that led to, in very serendipitous ways, my next entrepreneurial opportunity, which was in the health club business. And it was almost like a parallel universe for me happening five years later after the Cutco story. I got into this health club business. I had an incredible mentor uh, named Mark Fisher, who gave me an opportunity uh, to be a leader in that organization and had an incredible experience. And, uh, and I ended up leaving that after a couple of years because my good buddy, Hal Elrod, was telling me about this thing called coaching. And, and when he first told me about this thing called coaching, I thought, that sounds like a legal scam. You mean... People pay you money to just talk with them. And, and then when I realized he not only was being paid money to talk with people, but he was sitting in his underwear all day, I thought, this is worth exploring. I followed Hal's lead and uh, I got into coaching. And a lot of people don't know the full story here, but I went to a bunch of different trainings. And then Hal, he literally handed me uh, my first 10, 15, 20 clients and, and that was how my coaching business took off. And I did that for about five or six years. And then uh, Vitamix was a client of mine at one point. And then I ended up working for them. And that starts to get us all the way up to here. So I'm fast-tracking the whole story. But that's, like, <laughs> that's the uh, chronological order of things, how they unfolded. Hey, guys. Dr. Richard here. 
For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. The theme, though, seems to be people coming into your life at key moments, you know, whether it was Mark Fisher for the health club thing, whether it was Hal Elrod with coaching in your underwear uh, <laughs> or, or, or Vitamix. It was these people who popped up at the right time for you or, and maybe to steal from Deepak Chokra, synchronicity. Yeah. And I, I want to say something about that. I was on a trail run with my good friend, uh, Brother James, our musical musician messenger. And, uh, and Jer and I were, when we run, we have these like deep conversations sometimes. And uh, one of the things he, he said to me is he said, man, you know, you are so lucky that at such a young age, you had a mentor like Dan. And I, I stopped in my tracks and I said, Jer, I just realized something. I said, you're right, but I'm not lucky because I had a mentor like Dan. And I said, Jer, I've never actually stopped and thought about this, but I've had probably 10 Dans in my life. And, 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 and you would have thought I just, you know, told him the secret to life. You know, he's had this look on his face like, oh my gosh, because he, he thought to have one incredible mentor at a young age would be amazing. But to have 10 like that, oh my gosh. And I shared, and then we had a conversation about that. And when I look back on who, and I could talk about these 10 Dans that I've had, uh, none of them are the original Dan, but I've had a number of mentors. And Dr. Richard, one of the things that I've come to appreciate is somebody could look at that and say, well, you got lucky. Maybe. Um, I look at it, and one of the patterns that I recognize is I've always had an openness. And you could call it a humility. I don't know. You could call it a curiosity. I've always had an openness to figuring out who is my teacher and what can I learn from them. And I eventually got to a point where I believed that every single person I meet is my teacher in some way. But the reason I feel like I've had not one or three, but quite a few mentors in my life is because I've always been open to who is it that you know their wisdom and their experience could really serve my ability to fulfill my mission. And, uh, and so I, that's just something that as I've thought about that more and more, I don't talk about that very often, but it makes me think that this idea of cultivating mentors is something that we, each of us individually, needs to actually take some ownership over and not just hope that you know, we have a Dan that stumbles into our lives. I think we have to maybe flip it around and say, how do I proactively create the conditions to where the kinds of people who I want mentoring me, I'm in proximity, and then they actually want to mentor me? And that opens up a whole other you know, curiosity that I've had. So I just want to acknowledge that because I think it's easy to overlook that. I think it's important because a lot of people listening to this or who are on either a, a journey of self-improvement or a journey of entrepreneurship oftentimes may not know 
who to ask or how to ask if they identify the who. So would you mind sharing us from your perspective a little bit about the how? How do you find that mentor? I'm really glad you asked that question. So when I was at Vitamix, and this is a story about a gentleman, uh, Dr. David Cooperider, who is now today, uh, at this moment, one of my most important mentors and influences. Well, when I first met David, I was one of a thousand employees of an organization, Vitamix, that had hired him to come in and do some consulting work. And I was in a meeting that he was facilitating for about 25 people. And after about an hour into that meeting, I'll, I'll never forget, I was texting my buddy, John Rulin. And I said, hey, man, I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, Dr. David Cooperider, but I ha-, and I sent him a text. I said, I have this feeling that his mission and what he's up to and what he's doing, that we are going to want to be participants in this in our lives. Because I was learning about appreciative inquiry for the first time. So one of the things that that led to was I then proactively chose to go get my executive MBA. And to do that, I had to write a check for about $110,000 at Case Western Reserve um, because David was one of the key professors in that program. And I knew that there might be a lot of benefits to going through that learning experience. But one of the biggest ones was just to get closer to David. And um, I went through that program, got to know him. And then years later, my path crossed his path again, um, where we actually got to collaborate on a project. And just days after the, the particular event that he and I got to run together, he called me on the phone. And it was a phone call that I didn't know it at the time. But looking back after three years now, uh, it was a call that redirected the rest of my life when he invited me to collaborate with him very closely on the work that I would end up doing, that I'm now doing. And so here's a case where the day I met him was looking back maybe eight years ago. And it was a long-term process but I had this openness to, okay, what he represents and the mission he's on and what he values, I have a deep alignment with that. So that's a personal story of how you could say I've attracted or David has attracted or we both attracted towards each other. And if I had to deconstruct it, Dr. Richard, so that somebody could get a, okay, here's something really practical. If I want to attract really quality mentors in my world, I don't believe that you have to necessarily go pay $100,000 to have a mentor. In my case, that was a vehicle through which I could establish a kind of relationship and maybe credibility and maybe trust that that could happen. What I do believe is, is critical to attracting quality mentors is to, be, is to figure out what mission am I on? What purpose is driving me? And who are the individuals who maybe are a generation ahead of me? That's been a part of my kind of formula is who is a decade or two decades, or in David's case, he's been doing, he started doing the work the day I was born. He was 30 years ahead of me. And, I, and so I'm always looking at who is maybe a generation or two ahead of me, and maybe not. Maybe they're the same generation that I am in terms of age or stage, who is on a mission. And maybe my skills could actually help further their mission. Because if it's not just about me getting something, but if it's also about me able to contribute to their mission, it's amazing what can happen. Another one of those mentors for me is Dr. Richard Boyatzis, who you probably are familiar. He's one of the top emotional intelligence instructors in the world today. 
And uh, he was one of those professors at Case. But by getting in proximity with him, he got to know what I valued and what I was interested in. And he opened a door for me to start teaching at Case. But he only opened that door because he saw that my values aligned with his. And he saw that my strengths and my skills could actually further his message. So I think that's an interesting piece of the puzzle when we're trying to attract mentors in our lives or even strategic partnerships is to not just ask, what can I get? But what can I legitimately give to serve his or her mission? And how can I make sure that this potential mentor of mine can see that we actually have a really strong value alignment? So those are just a couple of reflections on that whole idea of attracting uh, mentors. Somewhere in Florida, Bob Berg is smiling and nodding in agreement probably with what you're saying because it makes a lot of sense that we as a society, and there's there's data to back this up. In fact, social media for all of the good things it does has made us a lot more selfish and we do have the data to support that. You're talking about the opposite of that, having humility whether somebody's older than you, younger than you, not being presumptuous to think that you know more or less than them, but really focusing on how can I give back? How can what I'm doing in my mission help help somebody else? And I think that is brilliant and refreshing in this day and age, to be sure. Yeah, and, and what's convenient is it, it also works. It also, you know, it, it, when you come through the lens of what works, that seems to work, at least for me. Well, one of the things that, that really stands out is that you helped them grow from $42 million in revenue to $174 million in revenue in less than five years. So that stood off the page to me. And, and I'm sure people listening to this want to know, how did you do that? Yeah. Well, so the, the first answer is I didn't. Um, I clearly didn't. And anybody who's been in any leadership role knows that there's no such thing as a person that does that. But yeah, the question I appreciate. And there's a few things that come to mind. First of all, I was, um, you know, you said earlier, in the right place at the right time. There's a number of macro level trends that have nothing to do with me um, that existed before I got there. And trends like people being more interested in what they put into their bodies, right? The technical term we used internally at Vitamix is what we call the transparency trend. People want to know not just the nutrient uh, information of what's coming into their bodies, but even the source of that food. There's an interest in transparency to where did this come from and what does it do to my body? There were other trends too, like people wanting to be home chefs. Like if you look at Reality, tele- reality television, one of the fastest growing segments in the last 10 years was like the home cooking segment, right? So I just want to be clear, there's macro level trends that, were, that made it ripe for us to possibly grow. It doesn't guarantee it. And let's not forget that we had arguably the best product in the world. Um, and we could argue if I'm biased or whether it is or isn't, I'll say it is. And so those are in- incredible pieces of the puzzle that can't be denied. What role did I play? Well, when I was brought in, um, like many sales organizations, this isn't unique to Vitamix, there was, uh, there was a, some tension between their, um, their geographically dispersed sales organization and the headquarters. And what I would consider to be normal, natural tension when you have decisions being made um, by different folks who don't get to connect closely together every day. 
That happens in organizations. That's the norm I've discovered. And so one of the things that I saw, though, was that even though there was cultural tension and some opportunities to improve really the quality of the culture within that sales team, what I saw was that the people, both the leadership, the regional managers that reported to me when I got there, as well as the demonstrators that they were leading before I got there, these were incredible people. These were human beings who were really good at what they did. There were just some systemic issues that are natural that had occurred uh, with a geographically, geographically dispersed sales organization that weren't the product of bad people. They were just the product of what happens in a human system. And when I say a system or a human system, you know, every single person listening to this has experienced a human system. The, the, the most common unit of human system that we could relate to is that of a family. And if you're wondering, well, what does it mean to be a part of a human system or, or what are the dynamics of a system? A family is a great example because, and we just finished the holidays where you may have spent time with family that you don't spend as much time with the rest of the year. And so you may have noticed this, that in families and in any human system, we often have unintended consequences. Uh, we often have tension or problems that nobody is intentionally wanting to create. It just exists when you have a system of people. So I was able to bring certain strengths that I had. And I, I learned about appreciative inquiry my first week on the job. And without talking about appreciative inquiry to everybody I worked with, I realized the principles of it, the principles of including as many voices as possible in the most important decisions, the principles of finding the strengths within any system, lifting those up and spreading them, um, the principles of really being careful about the questions that we ask ourselves. Questions like, well, why are we doing what we're doing? I'll never forget one of the first meetings that I led with our management team. They all came in the room. And the only thing I had planned was one question. And the question was, I just want us to have a dialogue around why does being here matter? And we had a several hour dialogue. And by the time we got to the end of it, we all came to this recognition that it didn't really matter how many blenders we sold. It didn't really matter you know, if we made a lot of money or a little bit of money. I mean, we cared. But the thing that mattered most was that for all of us at that time was we wanted to create a culture where anybody who was a part of our culture, whether they were with us forever or just for a season, they became a better human being, that their well-being improved. And it was, uh, that's just a great example of, you know, you choose the certain questions and you discover certain things and that can change the trajectory of an organization. But we had a lot of great things that happened that unfolded. And I could get into the technicalities of how we designed and rolled out training across the country. But I think the biggest thing that helped us was not only those things that I had no control over, but that we really cared about the quality of the experience for the people that worked within our division, within our organization. And, and that we understood just a little bit about the psychology of a whole system of people. And, and that we were paying attention to that. So uh, again, I give a lot of stories, but uh, in fact, I will finish with one. One of my Dan's uh, was actually, he's still the chief operating officer at Vitamix today. Uh, his name's Tony. And Tony, one of the things that I learned from Tony is Tony was, on one hand, most of us always felt like he was probably the smartest guy in the room. Yet as a leader, what was really admirable, and the other executives at Vitamix, they embodied this as well. As a leader, he always wanted to hear the ideas of others. And he always wanted to find the strengths of others. 
And he wanted to give others the chance, the responsibility to make mistakes, to experiment intelligently, to think about it a little bit, but to go apply their best strengths. So for me to get to learn that amongst many other things from Tony, that was a great model for me to realize, hey, being a leader is not about having the answers. That's the old fashioned model. A hundred years ago, that was true, right? In a production line, if you're the manager of efficiency, then you should have an answer to what's everything that's supposed to happen in this production line. But, right. but in a changing environment where we're facing challenges as an organization that nobody has the answer to, um, what we're learning, and I learned from Tony firsthand, is that the best answers are going to arrive by combining everybody's strengths. They're no longer going to emerge from a person or two. The more complex the environment is. That was a big influence for me in my thinking about leadership. Outstanding. And I'm very appreciative that you've been willing to share these experiential stories as you've gone through your journey. And we're, we're getting close on time, but I would be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit or give you the opportunity to tell us about the Flourishing Leadership Institute and just scratch the surface on appreciative inquiry. You've mentioned it several times. I know that's something you're well known for. Talk to us about FLI and how it utilizes appreciative inquiry. Yeah, well, we're we're driven by one question, and um, you, you know, as you know, I'm I partner with Hal to help nurture along the Miracle Morning community and the Best Year Ever community and the Quantum Leap Mastermind community. And one of the things that I've enjoyed is that every one of these communities, in their own way, is also asking a version of the same question. And the primary question that we ask here at FLI and FLI is we're kind of like one part uh, research institute one part consulting company, and then we're a training organization because we now certify people in our approach to facilitating kind of group uh, facilitation. And the big question that drives all of that is what is it that, what is it that causes any human system or group of people to be at their very best, to be able to actually shape their future proactively, and what allows that to happen more effectively and faster, and maybe most importantly, more naturally than it's ever happened before. And that question has led us to a lot of fascinating discoveries. It's brought us into some incredible conversations from conversations we're having with the largest you know, social networking platform right now to German automobile manufacturers, who I won't say the name, but uh, we're going out to Munich probably next month. And you know, what they, the reason why they called us is because they've got a lot of smart people that are a part of their organization. And what they're recognizing is that when a group of people need to shape their future in the face of changes that they don't have an answer to, we have to uncover what is it that allows a living group of people to be at their very best. And some of the answers we're finding are some of the things I shared earlier. Um, It's about recognizing the importance of coming from strength But when it comes to systems, what we call new configurations of strengths, which means breaking down silos, getting rid of hierarchy and barriers and letting people have conversations that don't normally have conversations. It's also about the importance of the questions that we ask. And so when people ask us, what do we do? We get paid pretty well to go into organizations and design the smallest number of questions that will lead to the, the conversations that will allow that community or group of people to most effectively create the best possible future. And even though the work we do is at the level of the system, what I've really come to enjoy is that if anyone's listening right now, 
every single thing I've just said applies to individuals. In fact, that's the nature of systems, that what's true at the whole is true at the level of the cellular, the part, or the source. So everything we've learned about moving a thousand people forward, it actually applies to moving one person forward, right? Think of everything we just said, connecting to our greatest strengths, uh, being sharp about the kinds of questions we're asking ourselves, maybe just being more conscious about it. That's in a nutshell, the work that we do. And hopefully in me sharing that, it reveals some sort of value for any of your listeners. If it doesn't, you can give me another question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm sure that it does. And I know that we've only just looked at this from a very high level over. We could probably spend an hour or so just talking about appreciative inquiry, but we, we don't have the time to do it, unfortunately. But uh, as we are at the end, let me just say thank you so much for being a part of this episode of The Daily Helping. I'm really grateful you came on. And as you know, one of the things that I ask every guest who comes on my show is, what is your biggest helping? So John, what would be the single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing you today? Oh, that's a big question. The single most important piece of information. Well, I think it would be an encouragement, an encouragement for people to find a way to push pause. And when I say find a way to push pause, this comes from system science. And that uh, when people hear the word system, they often think of like a computer or an automobile as an example, uh, where if you push pause on a, on a machine and what's called a simple system, if you push pause, it stops working. What we know about a human system or an individual is when we push pause, it actually starts working. So my encouragement when I say to push pause is to invite everybody in whatever way you can do that. For some people, it's mindfulness. For some people, it's yoga. For some people, it's connecting to nature. For some people, it's uh, just being in the school of silence. But I'd encourage everybody to push pause um, with the hope that in that space, Maybe you can become open, open to seeing things differently, open to appreciating people in a different way, and then ultimately open to the possibility and the potential that uh, each of us can actually shape the future as it emerges. So that would be my encouragement. Push pause. Beautifully said. John, where can people find you? Well, they could find me, um, you could find me on Facebook. I famously don't have a great answer for this. Find me on Facebook. They could find me on this episode right here. Um, they could find us at our website, Lead to Flourish. Lead, L-E-A-D, number two, flourish.com. That's, that's it. They could find me in Cuyahoga National Park running through the trails <laughs> With, in about 20 minutes. <laughs> outstanding. And, and for those of you who are not watching this on the live stream, but rather listening to this in your car or on the treadmill at the gym, we will have all of John's information posted in the Daily Helping app as well as at thedailyhelping.com. But again, John, thank you so much for being a part of this show today. It was fantastic getting to interview you and, and hopefully we get to do this again sometime. And for those of you listening, either watching this live or those of you listening to this through iTunes and wherever else you do. Thank you so much for tuning in and making this a part of your day. I know there's a lot of podcasts that you could listen to, and I'm appreciative and grateful that you've chosen mine. If you liked what you heard, go out there and give us a five-star review on iTunes because this is well help. This is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your feeds using the hashtag my daily helping because we know the happiest people are those that help others. Thanks, Dr. Richard. Great being with you. Likewise. <laughs>